Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Many, if not most, of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities. Some names have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lisa or myself. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I flew up to the mirror Well, there was nothing that I seen You lie, I cried The butterfly woke And I died You lie, I cried The butterfly woke And I died Well, we are so happy to be back with our wonderful listeners. Today, we have a very special guest and expert, Alicia Gregg. Alicia is a licensed professional counselor associate in Texas, working with adolescents and adults with anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and a myriad of other issues. She holds a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling from Sam Houston State University. And full disclosure, she also happens to be my sister. We are so very happy to have you on today, Alicia. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with y'all. Yeah, of course, Lisa's here too. Hi, y'all. So glad to have you, Alicia. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this topic with you. So, of course, I love and adore my sister. And I'm happy to say that we are and have been very close all our lives. We have wonderfully frequent and thorough conversations on countless topics every time we talk on the phone and get together. And we were talking a few weeks ago about some strategies that you teach your clients. And you told me how you explain the emotional brain to your clients, which really resonated with me as it translates well to my coaching clients. Afterwards, I asked you if you would be willing to come on our podcast and you said yes. So today we are delighted that you can teach our listeners and us about this concept. So first, I guess to start us off, you were raving about Albert Ellis's rational emotive behavior therapy, which you mentioned helps people change irrational beliefs into rational ones. How do these techniques apply to a person recovering from a narcissistic or toxic relationship? When a person suffers with psychological distress, the way in which they interpret situations becomes skewed. This in turn has a negative impact on the actions that they take. So they develop irrational beliefs like I need someone stronger than myself to be dependent upon, or I have no control over my happiness. So let's take someone like Lisa, The psychological distress for Lisa started at an early age, so she has many years practicing a skewed interpretation of situations. In other words, she has habits and they're automatic. So she irrationally believed her joy rested in the mood, actions, or words of her narcissistic father. These irrational beliefs carried over into the marital relationship. Rational emotive behavior therapy works by replacing these irrational beliefs with more rational ones. Does that make sense? It does. And it sounds both easy and simple, but I don't think it is. Why is that? 
Well, because when a person gets overwhelmed by a situation, they often physically and emotionally cannot react in a healthy manner. Rational thoughts are out the window. They get flooded, go into fight or flight mode, shut down or depersonalize. People who find themselves in emotionally charged situations can help themselves greatly by learning emotional regulation. How does that happen? Well, it's very complex brain and limbic system activities, but I can explain it very simply. And this is what Tony was alluding to earlier. So if you hold up your hand and make a fist with your thumb tucked inside the fingers, it will make it easier to understand my analogy. So first take a look at your wrist. This represents the brainstem. The brainstem is responsible for our basic life functions like heartbeat and breathing. And this is the very first part of the brain that develops and makes life possible. The next part that develops is the emotional center of the brain. So if you're science averse, like I am, I could scare you off with a diagram showing all these, you know, the amygdala and hippocampus, but I won't do all that. Instead, I'll refer you back to your fist with the thumb tucked under your fingers. The thumb represents those areas in your brain that are responsible for emotions. So finally, take a look at your fingers. These represent the largest and most recently developed part of the brain, the reasoning part. So let's put all of that together. The emotional part of our brain is evolutionarily ancient. It's thought that emotions had a lot to do with our survival back in the day. You know, fight or flight. Should I run from the saber-toothed tiger or stay and win the fight? So we've got this strongly ingrained pattern in our DNA. And that emotional part has been hard at work since you were born as well. When you were a baby, you cried when you were hungry or were wet or cold. So it's kind of been there forever. The fingers, on the other hand, represent the cognitive part of the brain, which is evolutionarily younger. This is the reasoning side of things. That part of our brain develops later and takes a while. So when you were five and dropped your ice cream cone, you might throw a temper tantrum thinking you're never going to get another ice cream. But now when we're 18, we drop the ice cream. We know we can just go get a new scoop so we don't have to go all emotional. So the cognitive development starts at birth and continues until you're 26 to 28 years old. So now I'm going to land my plane. With all this said, the emotional part of our brain has been controlling things a lot longer than the reasoning part of our brain. So when things get difficult, we can automatically throw reason out the window and go all in on emotions. And that's why these patterns are so hard to change. That was a very long-winded answer to your question, Lisa. <laughs> that is fascinating. And I've, I've never heard it put that way, just so simply that it makes sense that we would react in an emotional way because those feelings have been along, around so long, whereas the logical reasoning part of our brains are kind of immature in comparison to those emotions that are so deeply rooted. That's really fascinating. Yeah, the emotional center has been there longer. Therefore, it's our go-to automatically. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to the emotion. And what yeah. is familiar becomes comfortable. I think we talked oh, about yeah. that in an earlier episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So would you use rational emotive behavior therapy when working with a client suffering from a relationship like this, a toxic relationship? 
I would definitely use some of the techniques from REBT, but each person's experience is subjective. So I usually will pull from different forms of therapy, depending upon the client. But I, I really do think REBT is empowering from people when they're trying to understand how they got stuck, you know, how they got where they are. So Ellis has written a lot of self-help books. They can be useful for listeners who may be interested. And so my favorite one of his books is How to Stubbornly Refuse to Make Yourself Miserable About Anything. It's, it's an old book, but it, it's a good one. Well, it sounded very interesting and intriguing to me. So I happened to look it up on Amazon yesterday and found the description there. And I will just briefly read some of what that said. And that is all of us worry about something big or small every day, but much of the emotional misery we feel is an overreaction and it can be significantly reduced using the techniques you'll find in that book. Thinking negative thoughts is a choice that we can refuse to make. Applying the proven time-tested principles of REBT is a simple, logical way to find true mental health and happiness. It will teach you how to retrain your brain to focus on the positive aspects of your life and face each obstacle without unnecessary despair. Control your emotional destiny. Refuse to upset yourself about upsetting yourself. Solve practical problems as well as emotional problems conquer the tyranny of the shoulds and many more things. So it really does sound like a very interesting theory. And it sounds like that book might have a lot to offer. Yeah, I, I don't think it, you know, replaces everything, but I, but I really do think it, it helps people just kind of explore where they've become stuck and where they've like convinced themselves that they, sh that they should be in this place, you know? Mm. Yes, I would think learning this approach would be helpful for those stuck in toxic relationships. Again, it goes back to what we've talked about in previous episodes, that we are truly free in our own heads. And many people don't realize that when they're stuck. We need to learn to find that freedom. And once we have this freedom and we learn that we had it all along, we can take control of our lives. We can start seeing the positive that's coming into our lives as well as the negative. Finding lasting mental health comes with getting in touch with the positive possibilities in our lives and further pushing away the negative that can look like in a toxic situation, like gray rocking the toxic people in our lives and eventually, hopefully leaving those relationships when and if possible. What do y'all think? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm curious about rational emotive behavior therapy. So once a client realizes their irrationality, so we have the cognitive awareness, okay, this is how I was raised, or I was, you know, groomed for this or conditioned for this, then what? Well, you have to apply the cognitive reasoning to the in the moment heat of the battle that comes up during your, your daily life as well. Not only do, does the person need to be cognitively aware that they're in this toxic relationship, but they need to be cognitively aware when their emotions are going to arise. So in the heat of battle, when you're being attacked or however your uh, toxic spouse is talking to you, you need to be able to kind of catch those triggers and, and those emotional changes that are going on in your body. So it takes practice outside of the heat of battle. You have to, in your daily life, realize when you're becoming kind of dysregulated so that you can go, ah, this is what it feels like, you know, and it, maybe it's at a stop sign and you're feeling a little rage because the person ahead of you is on their phone, right? So you recognize this is what it feels like when I start to get a little triggered and, you know, how do I take care of myself in this moment? So if you're practicing that outside of the 
the heat of battle, then you're you're able to kind of learn to do that on more of a regular basis. It's like doing a workout, right? We're going to work out that cognitive brain while we're not high strung so that it's easily accessible during those moments when you're feeling yourself becoming dysregulated. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm thinking back to, you know, my relationship with number two, or even my father and all of the silent treatment. Mm -hmm. And I realize when, you know, someone at work is upset and not speaking to me, oh, those feelings of wanting to become that, that little puppy of, oh, maybe I'll leave a nice note in their box, or maybe I'll, you know, I'm trying to do all these performative things to win them back. But instead, maybe I could just sit and realize they're not talking to me right now. (laughs) They are upset about X, Y, or Z kind of talk myself through it. Is that kind of what you're alluding to? Yeah. Yeah. You're recognizing that, Hey, this is not healthy for me to worry about what they're thinking right? This is how am I feeling right now? You know? Um, so they don't have to love me. They -hmm. don't have to love me all the time. It's fine for them to go sit in their emotions. And I don't have to let that rule my daily responsibility for, for their behavior reactions toward you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Ellis would say it is your responsibility not to Mm -hmm. take that Mm -hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And he's a little harsh, actually. Um, so that's why I, I wouldn't say I, I use total REBT because it is a very directive and very, it's, it's a little bit less forgiving than I would want to be as a counselor. But it is, I mean, it, if you're really trying to get through to someone, you know, you are letting this happen to you. Mm-hmm. You are allowing it. And mm-hmm. so we need to learn to stop allowing it. And you're allowing it because you have good reason to have built this wall and, and this is the way you act. Mm-hmm. But now that we're aware of it, we can break down the wall. You can override it with the cognitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that comes with giving yourself that permission. And as you alluded to before, training that muscle at calm times, at off times, where that can start to become more automatic for you to go to the rational, logical part of your brain instead of falling into, as Lisa said, what we've always done, what we've basically been programmed to do which is the comfortable emotional side mm-hmm. that doesn't work out well. Yeah. Yeah. Especially e- with toxic people. Yeah. It's easily accessible. That's why we go there. You know, it's, it's what we know to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I just, I think the real key here is the practice. And mm-hmm. so much of therapy is that, you know, you can, you can come up with a great idea for weight loss, but if you still eat Cheetos after every meal, you're not going to do that. You have to practice that discipline every day. Same thing with practicing the discipline of mental health. Mm, Yeah. I think what y'all are doing with this podcast is really helpful for a person practicing this. You know, you're, you're equipping yourself with an understanding Mm -hmm. ahead of, you know, ahead of time or ahead of the next argument, right? So if someone's listening to this today and they're hearing all of these, you know, repetitive, these are your red flags, or this is gray rocking, they're equipped. And if they're really thinking about it and applying them that to their lives, then in the heated battle, maybe some of it'll start to help, you know, a little, mm-hmm. little at a time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And the kind of fun and scary part about that is, you know, we start practicing these things a little little at a time and we're gaining knowledge and that knowledge is power. And I think back to 
uh, those last few months with number two and how I would gray rock or I would walk away or refuse to engage during the rages or the name calling, or I would question him. What did you mean by that? And that was a whole, while I felt powerful in the moment, it was also very scary. But the thing with narcissists and toxic people, it's always a moving target. And so once we figure out one of their behaviors and maybe call them on it, then they flip the script a little bit. And so we have to be on guard for that too. So I I love what you said, Alicia, about practicing outside of the moment. You know, it's like a 30-minute workout in preparation or a 30-minute run in preparation for the marathon. Yeah. (laughs) And you don't really know the course for the marathon. You know, it's kind of hidden. But I I do want to say that too, like, oh, I'm an expert in gray rock. And so it's going to work every time. It doesn't Mm. always work every time. But the more we do practice this, I would call it probably mindfulness, just being Mm -hmm. in the moment yeah, and allowing ourselves to kind of sit in those emotions for just a bit and acknowledge them. Then we can, as Tony loves to talk about, is build those new neural pathways. And so while it's difficult, it's also empowering. And the more we do it, the stronger we become. I agree. I like the way you put that in. I've heard Tony use that phrase a lot too. And <laughs> that's one of those science adverse things. I choose <laughs> well, not to remember all those words. <laughs> I, that's about the the extent of my science knowledge. So don't. It is don't not. That it is not. You're an expert <laughs> in a lot of sciencey things. <laughs> uh, well, Lisa, would you be at all interested in talking a little bit about the mindfulness exercise that you go through that you had explained to me when you start having these intrusive thoughts, you've left this relationship. However, you get intrusive thoughts that come in and those are those, those very established neural pathways. Mm -hmm. I I think mindfulness can be practiced in a number of ways and, and you have to find a way that works for you. And what I'm going to explain now doesn't always work, actually, depending on the type of thought I'm having, but, and it goes in cycles. So number two had a particular smell, a really good smell. And then, of course, as with any relationship, you might have your song or a movie that you watched together or a show that you talked about a lot or, or what or a road you traveled down together all the time. And those can be activating for people or triggering is, but apparently that's triggering is triggering to people. So I'll use the word activating. So they activate those emotions and I can go down an aisle in the grocery store with all the soaps and things and smell that smell. If I'm not careful, it sucks me back in and I start to miss him. I have the memory of how his hug feels his voice and his hand, you know, you just have all these memories, then that taps into the emotion and I miss him. So what I've learned to do through my counselor is one aspect of mindfulness is just to say to myself out loud, I'm having a memory of his smell, period. That's it. I don't personalize it. I don't go on and like I just did with you. I don't go on and say, oh, I really miss him. And that was such a great smell. And he gave such great hugs. And I don't go into that. I just objectify it and say, I'm having a memory of his smell. Or, hmm, that smells like him, period. 
And at first it was a little awkward because I'm a talker and I want want to explain to myself a lot of things. And she's teaching me, no, you don't need to do that because then you're just re-engaging with it. And so it sounds really simple. It hasn't always been easy. A lot of foods are activating for me. And so I actually avoid some still if they remind me particularly of him. Others, I'm allowing myself to just enjoy it if I enjoy it and say, this is really good cake, period. And I'm enjoying this. That's it. And other foods, you know, I, I do avoid just because I haven't quite mastered how to disassociate, you know, the emotion quite yet. But I think allowing yourself to have the memory, but also calling it that. It is a memory. I'm remembering this. I'm remembering this movie, period. Next thing on my grocery list or, you know, next piece of clothing to fold. And I think another key to this style of mindfulness is then not sitting still, but continuing to move. Or if I am sitting still, go find something to do. You know, taking my power back and not allowing myself to sit in that emotion. Another thing I I would want to say, too, is that even in toxic and narcissistic relationships, there are there are good times. I I talked about this before. You know, there is love involved (laughs) and that part is hard to leave. It wasn't easy. It was heartbreaking because there is the good. People aren't all good or all bad. And I think that is what is so excruciatingly painful about about leaving is that potential that people pleasers see in most everyone is that potential to to change the potential to be kind and while there is that potential there's so much other that is so harmful and that that good is actually part of the abuse cycle it's not an outlier we want to name it an outlier and say oh look they have the potential to change because they did this one nice thing but no the good is still part of the manipulation Right. And as people pleasers and people that want to help make the world better, we always have hope for the people in our lives that we can help them, you know, get better. And people that have had a narcissistic partner or friend or what have you in their life, you know, you have that confidence that I'm, I'm going to fix this person. I'm going to help this person. And that's just, I think, a natural part of those of us that, you know, are the people pleasers. We're we're going to find a way to ease their pain, ease their struggles. And then eventually that'll benefit me because I will have helped him. And then I'll have that great feeling that I helped this person. And as we've said before, those people do not change and you are fighting a losing battle. That goes back to what Alicia was saying earlier about those parts of our brain that are developed earlier for people pleasers or empaths or whatever you know, buzzword we want to use. Yes, we're trying to fix, but not from an expert type viewpoint, not from a narcissistic, like, ah, ha, ha, I I can, I have a magic wand or I have the right answers for everything, but it's coming from, that's what we had to do very early on to stay in the good graces of our, our, I don't know, parents or whatever our experience was we're accustomed to fixing and making things better 
so that life would be better for us. So I don't want people to think that we're looking down at people from a place of judgment of you need fixing. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And I think it's important to to realize that when we're when we're talking about this REBT or having a cognitive response rather than the emotional response, that we're doing it from a place of self-protection, not, you know, not in the, oh, you've got to leave him or, you know, that that kind of thing. Cause there there are situations where we can't leave our narcissistic relationship or you know that narcissistic person. Maybe it's maybe it's a parent. Maybe, you know what, maybe you were still trying to give a relationship a try, but it's from a perspective of I just need to help myself learn to deal better. Absolutely. Yes. And yeah, there are some relationships that you can't leave if you have a toxic boss or you're a you know, a part of a committee and there might be one or two toxic people on that. What you're discussing here today, I think is very beneficial to help you deal with the moment you're in, you know, a situation with these people. Yeah. The emotional dysregulation moment, right? Yes. How to deal with the emotional dysregulation. And I think that mindfulness Lisa was talking about really a great strategy, you know, whatever works for you is in mindfulness is that's very helpful. Um, you know, they talk about deep breathing. It really can help you emotionally regulate, even though it, I think people just gloss over that because everybody says it, but it actually gets the oxygen in there and it actually does some very important biological function, you know, adjustments there. It gets oxygen to the brain so you can think and it can help you relax. And so, you know, all of those techniques are really important in moments of dysregulation. So Alicia, Lisa and I have a friend that is in a toxic relationship and she's given us permission to talk about her situation. She's been in it for several months and this guy that she is with, you know, they'll be having a great time. They'll be at a concert or at a restaurant and his demeanor can change on a dime from they're having a great time, having great conversation to literally all of a sudden she can just almost see a curtain come down across his face. And she knows he's reverting into some part of his mind where he's concerned and worried about something about her that maybe she said about her past before she even started dating him. And she, this happens so frequently, literally it's like she can see, you know, a curtain falling over, across his face. And she I think automatically reverts to her emotional brain and, you know, inevitably the tears start because he starts accusing her of things that could possibly happen in the future based on nothing. That's reality. It's all his worries and anxiety from his baggage, I believe. So if you had a client like that come in, who would tell you, this is my situation. What, what do you think? You'd wow. Say. You know, um, I think this shows a great opportunity where, where you could teach a client to practice, right? Um, because you're, you're explaining that she's actually got a visual cue. She sees the darkness come over his face. And so if she can practice the idea of, Hey, when I see that darkness come over, I've got this normal emotional response. I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to allow that to run the moment. I'm going to keep 
my faculties about me, right? The next, mm -hmm. I'm going to prepare for the next time the curtain falls. So I think it gives them an opportunity to, to practice being uh, present rather than going to the sadness and that automatic thought. So, you know, again, practice. <laughs> this is an opportunity for her to practice. She can uh, visualize this type of thing happening and how she would prefer to react, right? And she can do that and be prepared. Maybe, if, you know, this situation is going to be different, whatever he's upset about, but be prepared. Hey, this happens. I'm going to be prepared next time for the attack or the, the moment. I feel like he really gets something out of it, watching her emotional response. That's what he wants. And he's trained her to respond that way when that curtain drops. And if she can learn techniques to get them out of that pattern, I think that would be a very beneficial thing for her as far as the course of their relationship that he's not going to be getting what he wants from her anymore once she starts practicing these and applying these techniques. Mm. What do y'all think? Yeah, I think that he won't be getting the reward mm -hmm. that he's looking for her acting, you know, pitiful for him. And so either he will be dissuaded from doing that again, or maybe that's not what he wants in a relationship and he'll move on. I think there's will. a definite payoff there. And that curtain that she sees is in part his insecurity being visible. So the more insecure he feels, he's going to kind of project that into the relationship, which then in turn causes her, you know, we talk about the fight or flight response, but there's also the freeze and fawning. Mm -hmm. And so that activates for her the fawning response where she's going to fawn all over him and she's going to backpedal and give him all of this attention and make sure he's okay and make sure the relationship's okay. She's doing all the work. Yeah. All he did was have a look and he's trained her all he has to do is have a look and start a conversation and she goes into that fawning mode, which then feeds him, which is what Alicia was talking about. It's just a vicious cycle for both of them. And my suggestion would be, yes, practice, practice, practice. She's got enough experience with this where she can go back in time and maybe script out how she would do it if that happened again, how she would do it if this conversation happened again. And I would say for her to practice very short, mindful type phrases that she could use with him, something like, we've discussed this before. I won't discuss this again. Or that happened in 2006 or, you know, whatever. Try to avoid the you word because it can come across accusatory, but she needs to be very calm and say, this is something that happened in 2018. I'm happy to talk about 2022 period. And if she can get away, that would be her time to walk away, but remain calm and say, we've had this discussion. I'm happy to talk about today. I will not go back to that again. And that's her boundary. And she needs to stick to it. And if he keeps at it, then she says, I will talk to you later when we're more in the present. Goodbye. I will mm. talk to you when we are, when we're past this, set that boundary. Right. And as we discussed a few episodes ago, people that take the codependent role in a relationship have very weak boundaries. And when you're in that unhealthy relationship, in the heated part of that unhealthy relationship, you don't want to have boundaries because you want to keep this person because you love this person and you were fighting 
with everything you have really emotionally to keep this person and keep this relationship and cutting and pasting it together as best you can by the moment. Yeah. And at what cost, you know, at, at what cost? And I know for me, it, it took a toll on, on my health in every category, mm-hmm. physical, emotional, spiritual, and until you're just barely a fraction, you know, a shell. And it's a lonely place to be. You know, it's funny, and this is probably for a different podcast, but the the contempt messages that we get are directly correlated with our the number of um, illnesses a person gets in the next year. Have you ever heard that research? No. I, I'm going to have to go back and find that. But contemptuous messages actually correlate to worse health outcomes. Wow. Wow. So we have to start protecting ourselves for the physical well-being as well. Wow. People that are in, like I said, the heated part of being in a toxic relationship and they're scrapping and fighting to keep this relationship going and they are doing all of the work. The toxic person is just kicked back, arms folded, saying, you know, dance pretty some more for me. And once you start getting this education and learning this is what's happening to me. My boundaries are horrible. This person is literally walking all over me and I feel so horrible just most of the time. You know, there's just those few little breadcrumbs that they throw to me when I feel good. Once they get that realization and realize, okay, you know, this is not good for me. This is not what I want the rest of my life to look like, which most likely means if I'm, you know, married to somebody like that or whatever, I have to leave this relationship. And, you know, what you're, what you've been talking about today, Leash, is very deliberate training of your mind, of the front part of your brain. It's very conscious and it takes effort and practice. That's a big step that these, you know, people that are stuck in that, at that point in their relationship, they have to take. It's a scary step. Because you do, like Lisa said, you love this person. You love the way they smell. You love the way they hug you. You know, you love the breadcrumbs. You love the little, little bits of love bombing and hoovering that happen, you know, that give you all the zingy feelings, you know, percentage wise, it's maybe, you know, three to 5% of your whole relationship that you're getting to have these feelings and a healthy relationship. You get to have those feelings most of the time, 95%, if not more of the time you get to have that, you know, being in these relationships is, is an addiction. You're addicted Mm -hmm. to that high that you get during the hoovering and the love bombing. You're addicted to that, but that, that high occurs less often and the withdrawal occurs more often. And so for longer periods of time, so it becomes out of balance and you're always chasing the dragon, like you said before. And it's never quite the same. And so if you think about any type of addict, whether it's to food, gambling, drinking, drugs, whatever, any kind of addict, the toll it takes on our health, right? So we take that hit of whatever and we feel great, but it's killing us on the insides or mm-hmm. meth addicts. It's, you know, you can just see it in their teeth, in their skin. And that's exactly what's happening. And I don't think that's 
an exaggeration in this type of relationship. No, not at all. I think the reward pathways are very similar for Mm -hmm. receiving that, you know, the love bombs (laughs) is very similar probably to, you know, what these, what addicts experience. And that's why the habit is so hard to break. Right. Lisa, you had mentioned before in a previous episode, the brain lights up the same way for love addiction as it does for cocaine addiction. It does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Researchers have examined functional MRIs of the brains of love addicts and drug addicts, and the same part of the brain lights up for both. Wow. Very powerful. And yeah, I mean, it truly takes becoming conscious about it, the education and choosing to make that change. And that change doesn't have to happen instantaneously. For Lisa, you came to my house in September of 2019 and you did not file for divorce until that next July. And during that time, when finally I knew what was going on, you would report things to me like I tried to do this or we planned to do that. And, you know, his toxic behavior just accelerated, you know, but you still had a glimmer of hope that maybe, you know, maybe he'll go to counseling, maybe some, something magical could happen. And, you know, it, it did take you a while. And so my, my point of that is you don't have to just go live with your mama all of a sudden, you know, you, you can take the time, be safe, but you know, that scary thought of leaving instantaneously you don't have to have that. You Mm -hmm. can, you know, put it on your timeline. However, to be safe, it may not be good to vocalize your plans to the toxic person. Mm -hmm. And also just with any addiction that we're trying to heal from, yes, cold turkey, but also we tend to have some sort of rehabilitation plan, right? And Mm. so in abusive relationships, you'll have a safety plan. But when when we recognize this as a love addiction, then we also realize, all right, I've got to have some experts in my corner who have dealt with this before, just like we would go to rehab and treat it like that so that we're not alone and not facing this alone. Got to have a support system in place, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I agree. This is really hard to do by yourself. And there is a lot out there to read and listen to and learn from. If you are able to have close people in your life to help you with this, it's really good to process this with them as well. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad Alicia's with us today because as a licensed professional counselor, what kind of advice, I guess, would you give or what would, what would you like to add about toxic relationships here? You know, I have to agree the importance of a support system and, you know, if you can get therapy, that's, it's great to have an outsider who can kind of help call you on your irrational thoughts. You know, we don't always notice that for ourselves and our friends don't necessarily have the objectivity to help with that all the time. So I think, you know, I know you've done some therapy. It's really very helpful to have an outsider kind of propping you up as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's the other advice I'd give. Yeah, that's a really good point how important it is to seek therapy or counseling, your friends are not necessarily equipped. And even if they are, you know, a licensed professional counselor, that is a lot to put on a friend. Whereas a therapist in that professional role is equipped to help you identify things that maybe you're not seeing and 
arm you with strategies to find your way and see the light for yourself. Mm -hmm. Alicia, you have a counseling practice. What is your client makeup and how might someone contact you if they're interested in learning about talking with you? Well, I'm licensed to practice in Texas for people in the state and I do online or in-person visits. If people are interested in contacting me, they can go to our website, which is www.wfipc.com. It's Woodlands Family Institute, and they can click on our therapists and I'll be listed under that tab. My clients are, I've got a variety, really. I, I work with a lot of adolescents, teenagers dealing with adjustment issues. There's been a lot since COVID. Um, and then adults as well who may have anxiety, depression, gosh, everything, obsessive compulsive disorder. I work with a large variety. I also do couples therapy and um, really enjoy that. Oh, you know, that reminds me when um, we were talking about you doing couples therapy, it's the Gottman technique that you yes. like to apply to that. Would, would you speak to that real quick? Oh, sure. Well, Gottman therapy is evidence-based. Um, they've, uh, the Gottmans, their married couple have done tons of research. I mean, years and years since the early seventies, um, researching couples and looking for the differences in which marriages survive, you know, what do the disasters do? What do the masters do? Right. So, um, they, they look at a lot of things going on in the relationship, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, stonewalling, which is kind of emotional dysregulation. And they look at that and they compare the, the people that make it, how much of that is in there and the people that don't make it, how much of that is in there. Right. And so the Gottmans have developed a, a bunch of um, interventions that have been proven to work with, with couples going through a myriad of issues. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really fascinating. So I would think a couple that came in and were successful in the Gottman therapy or any couples therapy would both individuals in the, in the marriage would have to both be low in the narcissism arena. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I can't speak to the research on it, but at least able to recognize the things they do in the relationship. I'm not going to say a narcissist can't learn, right? Maybe with some specific interventions, they can be taught to, oh, hold down the contempt or, you know, learn to rein in the criticism, learn to recognize feelings and, and address them. And if they can't, then I would say that's going to be a tough relationship to fix. If the narcissist is not willing to do the work, you know, again, it's practice. It's the same thing as we were talking about earlier. It's practice outside a session. You know, it's not what I can tell them. It's what they can go home and practice. Therapy takes a lot of deliberate thinking, conscious thinking for it to work. And as you said, it's not just the therapist to fix. You have to go home and practice together if you're in couples therapy. Yes. Yeah. I preach that a lot going mm. home and doing the work outside of the therapy room because 50 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever the session is, isn't going to fix what happened for however many hours there are in a week. Right. Yeah. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, I, you know, marriage or any type of relationship is just two imperfect people trying to navigate through life. And no matter what our label is, empath, narcissist, love addicted, what have you, the labels don't matter as much as the desire 
to work together and you have two willing partners and or one willing and one unwilling it's that combination that is so important just that willingness to to come forward and recognize and that self-awareness is so very important and I love those four points Alicia spoke to of criticism defensiveness contempt and stonewalling if I think back to my second marriage wow it's that's all there was that's all there was so it was it was doomed because of the unwillingness right right Um, yeah yes if he could have learned some like been aware and cared to fix those things that goes a long way to saving a relationship. Mm -hmm. And a healthy marriage or people on the path to wanting to build a healthy marriage, it takes, it takes two. There are two Mm -hmm. people in that dance of the marriage. And if one person is doing all the, all the work all the time, that's exhausting to that person. They eventually become, as Lisa described it, an empty shell of themselves. It's very wearing and cannot be sustained. I agree. Two people that are that are striving for a healthy relationship, there is a mutual respect. It's a level playing field. They view each other as equals. That's the big thing that is missing from a toxic relationship, an abusive relationship, mm-hmm. a relationship with a narcissist. Well said. I'm really curious about Gottman therapy and the four horsemen that you mentioned. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'll I'll back up and kind of go back over them again, um, tell you what they are. They call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they have in therapy, you learn their antidotes and you practice them. So criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. We'll start with criticism. We all know what criticism sounds like. You always leave the dishes in the sink. You know, so the antidote they recommend for criticism is something they call gentle startup. Gentle startup is I feel and I need. So I, you know, I feel nervous when I come in and the house is a wreck and I need for you to do the dishes after breakfast, you know, just tell them what you need. So, um, and you know, that can be in anything, you know, I feel upset when I come in and the house is chaotic. I need everybody to kind of be kind of calm when I walk in the door after a long day of work. That's a better way of handling what you need rather than criticizing your, your partner. Um, defensiveness. Hey, it's not my fault that everything's crazy, right? That's defensiveness. Instead, we take responsibility. You know, I realize that when you walk in after work and the house is kind of chaotic, that it's difficult for you. And I'm sorry, I also have you know, trouble getting everything organized after school. Take some responsibility, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert at this. I'm, I'm going to keep learning. I don't know. There, there could be a better example than that. Contempt. Well, contempt, you see it, right? Contempt, you can see. It's a smirk. You know, I think they say the left, like research shows, it's like the left half smile. That's contempt. You can kind of see that or, you know, or it can be in words. Um, what we want is not to describe our partner in this or not to, you know, try very hard not to show contempt and instead learn to describe your own feelings and needs. It's very similar to the gentle startup. I feel angry when I walk in and it looks like this and I need some more organization in life. And then stonewalling is the most interesting one because it sounds like you're doing something on purpose. It's really not. Stonewalling is when you get emotionally dysregulated, right? So if two people are arguing, we, and in therapy, we'll actually put pull socks on them to see what their heart rate is. 
And when they start to get upset, the heart rate raises maybe 100 beats a minute, you know, where maybe it's normally 60 to 80 or whatever. And we can see that they get emotionally dysregulated. At that point, there's no nothing good going to come out of a conversation. You can't solve anything when one of the partners is dysregulated. So we teach them to do self-soothing, like the deep breathing or even progressive muscle relaxation, really ground them back into the moment in therapy. So they, so we can continue doing work. And sometimes people have to take a, you know, a minute break and sometimes they have to take 10 minutes and do some self-soothing and, you know, literally separate from the moment. So yeah, those are the four horsemen and their antidotes. That is so interesting and so helpful. And I think that would be, that touches a little bit on the example we talked about earlier about our friend, when she can see that look, that curtain that may not be contempt, but it's getting there. Yeah. I imagine she does experience some contempt in those moments. And then we can see where she gets defensive and where she goes into stonewalling the crying, right? She can't be good to herself at that moment and she can't help you know, she can't help that situation. So yeah, I I see that there's all four of those showing up in their interactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a really great technique with couples because sometimes you can have baggage or have a chip on your shoulder about something about yourself and feel sensitive and your spouse may say, whatever, the dishes aren't done. And, you know, you never, you never think anything I do is good enough. You're always criticizing me. Is that called stonewalling? No, you're always criticizing me as criticism. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and defensiveness, right? Mm. You're always picking on, or, you know, you're picking on me or whatever. That's kind of both of those. Yeah. Yeah. When stonewalling is, I can't, I'm crying and I really can't communicate. Okay. Yeah. So even the victim can be criticizing. Oh, totally. Yeah. They can still be defensive, but they can also be critical. Right. Where this is a much more, as we kind of talked about earlier, a deliberate way of thinking. So he said, the dishes aren't done. This is not a personal attack on me. This is an objective observation he's making. That's how I'm going to choose to view this. Yeah. Take responsibility. You know what? You're right. I'm going to deep breathe and I'm going to respond with, yeah, I didn't get to those yet. How about you feel like doing them, you know, or if not, I'll, I'll do them after we're done eating. You take a more rational view of the situation instead of pulling out your baggage of he's being critical of me. Mm -hmm. And even if he is being critical of you, you still have control over how you handle and how you respond as opposed to react. Mm -hmm. And for your mental health, that's just a much better way. Mm-hmm. But it takes practice mm-hmm. and, you know, learning this, practicing this, visualizing this. Is, these are things that he's done in the past that I've re- reacted to and mm-hmm. it's not worked out well for us. I'm going to learn a different way of quote unquote, getting along mm-hmm. with him. Right. And in therapy that, you know, the therapist can, when you're having these conversations, cause we ask them to, you know, talk about something. You know, we prompt, we have prompts and we can see these things show up and we can say, Hey, okay, this is what I saw there. How is it? How is a different way you could put that, that you are taking responsibility for the dish situation? Mm-hmm. So would it be appropriate? So I, I really like the, the dishes thing, right? Because if you have a previous sense of shame or defensiveness about, or insecurity about not having things picked up or falling short on your responsibilities or what have you. So that's kind of your baggage in the relationship. And then someone comes in and says, the dishes aren't done. Would that be a time to say, 
you know, you're right. They're not done. And you mentioned this eight out of seven days of the week. (laughs) And for me, (laughs) that's a lot. That's a lot. So I guess the dishes are never done, but (laughs) you know, I can see that it's important to you that that task is done and I can't do it at this time. So can you not bring that up again? <laughs> like how would, mm-hmm. how would a person even begin to unpack that in a healthy conversation? To s- yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky because see, you're trying to, you're trying to go there to take some responsibility, but you still allow the criticism to come in. You, you mentioned that eight out of seven days, right? Yes. So the criticism comes in. So, you know, yeah, the dishes are not, I really have trouble getting to that. And I realize it's important to you. Mm. That's good. It affirms, it it affirms that person yet also takes that chip off your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now it doesn't solve the problem, Mm. you know, so, you know, it, you can then move into your feelings. You know, I feel overwhelmed most of the day and it, it just feels really low on my, on my list. I'm feeling right. This is what I'm feeling. And that's, that's kind of what we do in the Gottman thing is we really try to stay with the feeling, you know, so now he's got a feeling of needing it to feel less chaotic, but you've got a feeling of overwhelm that you need to deal with. And, and so, you know, you can't say which one's more important, right. But where can we find some footing here? Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe I, you know, I feel a little overwhelmed and, you know, I need some help and that's not going, you never help me. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we would in therapy, just guide them back. Hey, yeah, that's a really good start, Lisa. Now try it without the criticism, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and, and make you come up with that answer I just gave, right. Make you work mm-hmm. your way down to, oh, okay. So, you know, I might even just prompt you. Okay. So I heard the feeling, try it without criticism. Tell me the need. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm, that's so good. So good. It's like so it. hard. Communication is just really <laughs> hard. You know, I think it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And, and especially with um, relationships that have been going on quite a while and they have these patterns, just like, Mm -hmm. just, just like anybody else, you know, even healthy relationships have a few unhealthy patterns Mm -hmm. that could be fixed, but you know, some of these with highly emotionally charged situations, they've got more horsemen running Mm -hmm. rampant. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's such good stuff. Yeah, so good. I really, I really like working from that perspective. So good. When you have a healthy relationship, you have a level playing field, whereas in the toxic ones, it's not the toxic person. The narcissist is looking their nose down in a critical manner, if not most all of the time. And yeah, you know, if you can, if that person can get to therapy and learn these techniques, that's great. You know, narcissists don't change. So if it's someone that's lower on the narcissism scale, then maybe that's something that can work, but that person has to be willing to, you know, come to therapy and then actually go home and do the work. That's where, you know, if this is something that can work or not. And if you keep spinning your wheels or not, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I haven't had a couple yet where that's the case that I've had to, to kind of navigate that, but it seems like even if you can't change the narcissist, if they're willing to learn some skills, if this relationship is important enough that they can learn to recognize, well, maybe I could, maybe I could reword that, but maybe they don't want to, I don't, you know, I, I'm going to have to get some experience working with a narcissist in a relationship. I I think it'd be really interesting to, to have that. You know, I don't know that you're 
going to have a lot of narcissists that come to you because narcissists don't come to counseling and they don't come to coaching. You know, Lisa was talking about this in a, in a previous episode. Therapists have an ethical obligation to cut those kind of people loose. Mm -hmm. And you're just, you're literally just taking their money. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, I don't really have anything to add with that. I think you said that beautifully. You know, with the ethical, I do. With the ethical responsibility, I'm not saying that you know, after the first session, you're like, mm, you're a narcissist. No, thank you. And send them away. I'm not saying that. But if you can see over time, there's a pattern of defensiveness in the session or blaming or just even the body language, just sitting arms folded and it's her fault. It's his fault. There's that. I just think we go to therapy. We go to a doctor for healing, for help. And there is that ethical responsibility to not just continue to take money just to see someone spin their wheels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they wouldn't come more than twice anyway. True. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Alicia, we really, truly appreciate you coming on our podcast today and enlightening our audience and us with this very useful information. We hope it was beneficial and can help those seeking to find their path to first understanding their toxic relationships and eventually their way out of being and feeling stuck in those relationships. We all have a right to peace, security, and happiness, and those can only come about by building an arsenal of education for ourselves. So we thank you, Alicia, for being our guest. And Lisa and I thank our listeners for joining us today on Here's, Here's Your Red, Red Flag. Flag. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. I flew up to the mirror. Here's Your Red Flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa, and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks, y'all.